Hi, and welcome to Civs 101, the show where historians discuss Sid Meier's Civilization series. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be looking at China, another of the original 14 civs from Civilization I. Like many of the original civs in the series, China has undergone a major overhaul in the last few entries, particularly with regard to leaders. Traditionally led by Mao Zedong, China is now represented by two leaders in Civilization VI, Kublai Khan and Qin Shi Huang. To help me unpack these changes in leadership and to think about how civilization represents China more generally, I'm joined on this episode by my co-host on History Respawn, John Harney. Dr. John Harney is Associate Professor of History and the Chair of the Asian Studies Program at Center College. His scholarly interests include identity formation and colonial and post-colonial relations in East Asia. As fans of History Respawn know, John is well-versed in the long history of historical video games and has recently served as the coach for Center College's eSports team. John Harney, welcome to Civs 101. Thank you, Bob. I'm here to talk some Civ. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, I should mention, John, you are kind of the uh, leading force for studying Civ on History Respawn. You, you did our uh, playthrough uh, back in the day for Civ 5. And I think you played as China. Uh, and then you also did our yeah. episode for Civ Six, which I should mention, uh, for those of you who are curious about Sid Meier's memoir, which was published uh, back in the fall, uh, John uh, was directly referenced uh, in that memoir uh, near the end, uh, reference to History Respond in that episode. So good work, John. Developers, they notice sometimes. That's that, that was a genuine thrill when I saw that. I was like, oh my God, I've made it. This is amazing. <laughs> Sid Meier knows who I am. I know of me. He wrote, he wrote cool. your name, John. He wrote your name. <laughs> and my good friend, Tonio, Dr. Tonio Andrade of Emory University, uh, who was the guest on that episode, and I, he was a wonderful guest. He was also thrilled. He didn't even need his name mentioned to be. He's like, doesn't know it counts. <laughs> Sid Meier knows who I am too. <laughs> Uh, so, John, uh, first question, this is what I ask all the guests on this series. Uh, what's your experience with the Civilization series? And in a general way, what do you make of how they present the past? Um, I really like this question. I knew it was coming, of course. And yet I find myself kind of thinking about it in all of these different ways. My personal experience with it is that I have played almost every Civ game close to release because I am old and I have uh, a distinct memories of playing Civilization 1 and effectively putting a fort at every possible tile along the border with Russia and doing yeah. all these kind of game-breaking things that were that were great fun and everything like that. And so I played through all these Civs and I don't remember if it was Civ 3 or Civ 4 Um this happened a lot, but the, the most distinct example of losing time in what really should have been a medically concerning way. I'm pretty sure I was playing Civ 4. I was sitting in my apartment in Taiwan. I looked up. It was 7 p.m. I looked up again what felt like a move or two later, and it was 1 a.m. And I thought, oh, my God. And that was so that's kind of in deep, as they say. Um, and so uh, if anything, in recent years, I've been slightly less steeped in it in the sense that I haven't played the DLC and stuff as much as I would have liked to. But um yeah, it's been a big part of my life. And I think for a lot of video game players uh, my age, Civ is just, you know, this Civ games come out. And Civ games in a certain way, for some of us, especially if you like the more strategic type games, 
the rhythm of your gaming life becomes attuned to Civ game. <laughs> like, you know, like if you're a console gamer, the new console is this like threshold moment, right? Oh, things are going to change. And Civ feels like that for me sometimes. Yes. Like a new Civ is a really big deal. Um, and then in terms of what I think about Civ, you know, it's funny because, you know, we talk about this stuff, especially in episodes for History Respawned and uh, people who've watched those episodes know about this kind of Whig history, if you want to call it that, or progressive history, enlightenment history, or great civilizations model that you're kind of moving through society and advancing. Um, and and that is kind of a big thing, I suppose, in how Civ approaches things. And one could argue it's trapped in the gameplay. And in fact, when we were mentioned in Sid Meier's memoir, he kind of mentions us in that context, you know, that academics are paying attention to the game. But hey, listen, it, as a game, there's certain mechanical things that it works a certain certain way. But um, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that, in especially since Civ Four, there have been real efforts to diversify how the game actually works. Yeah. Um, and I think it's been tough to wean game players off the destroy everybody kind of mentality, which I still play Civ. <laughs> but I think they've worked really hard to give you other ways to um, to succeed. And I, I think that's interesting. And so that's for me, there's this ongoing narrative with Civ where I'm excited about the next Civ. Like, because that's they, they've they've really kept at that, and I I'm always curious to see where it goes next. Yeah, and you know I think it's so important. You mentioned uh, the kind of release of a new Civ game, kind of uh, for us demarcates generations. You know, I think in particular mm -hmm. when Civilization Two came out and how central that was to Windows ninety five. Right, it was kind of right. the first big computer game for Windows ninety five and showing what that new operating system could do and uh, you know I think it's the kind of the same thing with subsequent titles uh, in the series you know I think of um, Civ, uh, Civ 3, Civ 4 is kind of a Windows XP uh, as, mm -hmm. you know that game and so it's it is interesting how that happens and you know we've like you said we've had a very long standing relationship uh, with this game and it's also it's also intergenerational mm-hmm like my father isn't necessarily against video games per se, but like if he were to, if I were to play Destiny Two in front of him or something, he'd be sitting there going, "Oh, what's going on?" You know, my son's an adult, and yet, you know, my father's from a generation that just wouldn't even begin to comprehend why you would do such a thing with your free time, but he himself will download a Civ game and play it, you yeah. know, and we can muck around. And I have memories as a child playing it with him together, where he did everything and I suggested doing insane things and so on. And I think a lot of people have those experiences as well. Um, and that's impressive too, I think, that Civ has kind of, Civ fits into like old man game territory without being pigeonholed as an old man game. Mm -hmm. that, that's that's pretty impressive, I think. Yeah. Uh, so John, like I said at the top, there's a long tradition in Civ games uh, in featuring Mao as the leader mm -hmm. uh, for China. And this is common not just for main entries in the series, but then also offshoot Civ games like Civ Revolution 1 and 2. Um, but recently... Uh, however, uh, the series has moved away from Mao and brought on new leaders. And I'm wondering, what do you make of this long relationship between the Civilization series and Mao? And what do you make of the new leaders uh, that they've chosen for the China Civ? I love this question. Uh, this is such a interesting and complicated question. Um, so like, I'll give I'll kind of give my take on it, um, which is that certainly when in when the game first comes out, when the first Civ game comes out, and really for the first few Civ games, 
China, and this is, of course, very difficult for younger listeners and watchers to kind of comprehend even, but China really wasn't any in any way, shape or form a significant part of the international community at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was definitely this kind of China was kind of emerging. Right. And so, so, you know, to give a very, very quick sketch of where we are and to bring Mao into it, communist China is a thing as of 1949. The communist revolution is 1949. And when I teach Chinese history, I'll talk about 1949 to 1976 as the Maoist period, because Mao dies in 1976. Now, you know, of course, we're all historians here. We all know that we could break that down much more than that. But, you know, in short, you have this period um, in the post-war era of China not being isolationist per se, but at first kind of being neglected by the U.S. to a certain extent. One of the great moments of genius of Henry Kissinger who certainly wouldn't be a perfect individual, was, 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 was recognizing, you know, there was this assumption, of course, in 1950s United States foreign policy that you can't split up the Chinese and the Russians. They're, they have solidarity, right? They're brothers in arms. Um, they're socialist neighbors and so on and so on. But, of course, in reality, the Chinese-Soviet relationship began breaking down almost immediately after Stalin died in 53. Um, and Kissinger kind of recognized that. And Nixon famously goes and visits China. Uh, in uh, in 1973 and visits Mao. And so there's this iconic moment. And then, and at the time, China, to a certain extent, understandably, had this reputation as a bit of a hermit nation in the world. People weren't able to get in. And they had a very kind of rigid controls and everything else. But people knew who Mao was. You know, Mao had this kind of iconography. Of course, within China, he has this cult of personality. But outside of um, China to use a disgusting modern term, his branding is very strong, right? <laughs> and so you, you you would ask anyone, I think, in the Western world about China, and one of the first things they'd say would be, well, Chairman Mao. And so I think that this is a big part of the reason that he gets picked as the leader. And like that was something that was present in those early games, right? Like India, uh, Gandhi, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. China, uh, Mao. I think there's a certain amount of like pick the obvious person, you know, um, for this kind of a, for this game. And so I think that's part of the reason. And although China is developing economically in the 1980s and slowly opening up, it's still perceived by the outside as, as being kind of the same place. And the Tiananmen massacre of 1989 did nothing to, 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 to dilute that kind of issue. So I think that's part of it is that Mao is a shorthand. Now, the intriguing part of it is from day one, the thing that the China Civ does in Civ games is they're very good at masonry <laughs> and they're very good at bureaucracy. And the reasons for that is because you can you have you usually have some kind of a bonus to get the Great Wall first mm-hmm. when you're China, which also factors into kind of they tend to be a kind of you know a, almost like a wonder centric sieve. Tom, or you can play them that way sometimes, and then also kind of nodding to the fact that China was renowned for having these great bureaucracies and great you know civil services, mm-hmm. right? The massive exam system and all this kind of stuff, and so that was. Um, and so that's a really interesting thing. Like, if you know two things about China in like 1989 or whatever, it's that Chairman Mao was this really important person in the last 50 years, but also historically they're known for having a really complex bureaucracy and the Great Wall of China. Yeah. Which is pretty limited. But, you know, again, if you stopped someone on the street in an American city or a British city for that matter, that's probably the response you would get. And so I think it factors into that. So we move up to the present day and going with different leaders. And I think there's a few different things happening. I think that one in the Civ series, there is a very commendable 
there's been a decision that makes sense from a gameplay perspective, but from a representation or historical perspective is def definitely a really good thing, which is let's give you a choice of leaders, mm -hmm. right? Like that's like, like that gets us out of this thing where we're pigeonholing societies having these one, this one leader. Um, and then let's spread out and change who they are. And so now we have Qin Shi Huangdi and Kublai Khan. And those are really intriguing choices, actually, I think, um, for a few reasons. Um, so Kublai Khan first, you know, he's the grandson of Genghis Khan. And um, he's the guy Marco Polo talks about when Marco Polo goes to China. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for centuries and centuries, most European knowledge of China came from Marco Polo. For like centuries after he wrote The Travels of Marco Polo in prison, with a more talented ghostwriter, um, when they read about the great Khan of China, he was talking about Kublai Khan, mm -hmm. and he met Kublai Khan. But of course, Kublai Khan, you know, this is an interesting bit of gymnastics undertaken in Chinese history, where the Mongolian dynasty is called the Yuan dynasty, Y-U-A-N, and is theoretically a part of the imperial history of China. But in truth, is certainly, it's an interruption. You know, the Mongols come in and they do in northern China in the end of the 1200s what they did everywhere else, which is they devastate northern China. Yeah. And they kind of they kind of reach this compromise with the elites of the south where Kublai Khan effectively rules over what is ostensibly a Chinese style bureaucracy. But it's still a system where, you know, you have hereditary professions, uh, which was a Mongolian thing, um, including hereditary military service and things like that. Um, and. It can be seen as a Chinese empire, but it's kind of a Mongol empire of East Asia that sits in Beijing. Now, they try to conquer Japan and they fail. They effectively rule over Korea, although it's, 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 it's kind of a sphere of influence type thing. So he's kind of an interesting choice in that way. Um, and, you know, over the length of the European experience, then later on the American experience, Kublai Khan is kind of Chinese in some ways because Marco Polo says he's Chinese. Um, <laughs> but it's also true that the Chinese wish to see him as Chinese because it's more, it's not fair to say that it's more flattering. It's more complicated than that, right? But like it, it fits their own vision of their history to see him as a continuation rather than an interruption. Mm -hmm. Because seeing him as an interruption really kind of focuses on the fact that China was conquered and they don't want to reflect upon that. Mm -hmm. I mean, who does, right? Who wants to reflect <laughs> on being conquered by somebody else? So then you have Qin Shi Huangdi, and he's interesting too. So Qin Shi Huang, uh, so um, literally translates as the first emperor, capital F, capital E, which, you know, that's what he's called here in the game. And uh, he's the founder of the Qin dynasty. And Qin, Q-I-N, is, is where Europeans get the word China from. There isn't actually a, there isn't a Chinese word that the word China comes from in Latin-based languages. So the word China that we use comes from him. And he's genuinely a really interesting figure, historically speaking. He's the man who had the terracotta warriors built. People might know about those. Another wonder, and I think in the game, now they're a wonder, have been for a couple of games, where he has all these um, different troops uh, made up in terracotta. And the idea is that when he's finally buried, uh, they will protect him in the afterlife. And it's this massive, massive public work that is undertaken largely to, really to, under, uh, to underpin his own legitimacy. And he rules for a relatively brief period, about 15 years. And when he dies, the Qin dynasty collapses. And so it's quite interesting that the Qin dynasty doesn't really last long beyond him. Now, it's succeeded by something called the Han dynasty, H-A-N, which goes on for about 400 years. And later on, Western scholars will kind of compare the Han dynasty to Rome. It's kind of a similar time frame. It's kind of seen as being similarly dominant. It's seen as being similarly culturally influential. 
and all those things are true. But Qin Shi Huangdi is kind of, um, you know, uh, Huangdi means emperor and uh, Shi means first, and then Qin is his name. Qin Shi Huangdi is kind of, he's like a pre, he's a really important prequel to that mm-hmm. that comes after. So he's a builder in all these ways, like in the metaphorical sense as well. Qin Shi Huangdi is the guy who takes what at the time were about 15 to 20 um, different ways to write Chinese and settles on a uniform single way to write the script, which is really important. Um, and he's particularly popular with the Chinese Communist Party today. So this is where it actually gets really kind of interesting is that the Chinese Communist Party today, although this has changed in the last few years, for a long time really shied away from Mao, at least publicly. Um, Like, they would never say anything negative about Mao. Or, you know, Mao famously is considered to be like 30% to blame for the the worst things that happened during his run as ruler of China. And for those who don't know, we're talking about the deaths of millions of people. We're talking about the Cultural Revolution for 10 years where... Literally, students would beat their teachers to death and parade people who weren't seen as socialist enough through the streets. These are astonishing things that were happening during Mao's lifetime. But Mao has more or less escaped most of the rap for that. And the official story is that Mao, um, his mistake was that he allowed people to misuse him. That's that's the argument, mm. right? So... Um, but at the same time, for a long time, they didn't really talk about Mao much. Now, the other interesting thing was that, um, or at least, you know, you go to college, you've got to take a class in them and stuff like that. But they kind of were busy talking about state-owned enterprises and the importance of marketizing the economy and things like this in the 1990s. Um, but also during the Maoist period, everything had to be new, right? Everything was iconoclastic. You know, when Mao was a young man, Mao was part of a communist movement in the 1910s that was led by people who called for things like, you know, all Confucian temples must be destroyed. Mm. Um, that our imperial history is a black mark against us. That all it is is feudalism. That all it is is abuse of the proletariat by Chinese masters. And it's no different. It's no different from abuse of the Chinese proletariat by the foreign masters, which was the case in the 1910s that they were fighting against, which ended up being such an important component of their pitch to the Chinese people. You know, it was kind of a socialist China is an independent China and is a strong China that withstands foreign influence. But certainly when Mao was in his teen years, you know, one of Mao's early texts that's very influential is an article decrying the treatment of women in rural Chinese towns, specifically the sexual assault on women that was happening in in these places Mm -hmm. by men they were married to or by men that were important people in their society. And so Mao is knocking around with people who say Confucius is a joke and must be erased from our history. The dynastic period must be understood as a negative time. Um, We must erase all divisions between genders, for example. Men and women must wear the same clothes and have the same haircuts because we're allowing these divisions to, to, to emerge, which have resulted in the mistreatment of women by men. This is all really super hardcore radical left stuff, right? Like really radical left. I don't mean like, you know, vote for Elizabeth Warren radical. (laughs) Not that that she's all that radical. Like this is really serious, like, you know, Jacobin's got nothing on us type stuff, right? Um, (laughs) And that was his youth, you know, that was the youth that he was in. So when he's running the country, they didn't follow through, which with they didn't go and destroy every Confucian temple in the country. But Confucius was not somebody who was really celebrated. And that has really changed a lot in the last 20 years yeah. or so, that 
Confucius really is celebrated now. Um, the Confucius Institute, which is uh, present in a lot of American universities as well as British and other European universities, these are government-sponsored organs, Chinese government-sponsored organs that are there theoretically to spread the teaching of Chinese language and culture. But, you know, they're, they're part of an ostensible soft power project by the Chinese government. And, and that's an embrace of Confucius that would have been unthinkable in 1980. And similarly, the imperial history has also been welcomed. Now, that's a logical thing to do, because if you go to East Asia, you'll notice, whether it's soap operas, video games, comic books, you name it, these imperial periods are very rich and fertile ground for the kind of stuff that Chinese and Japanese and Korean audiences, they want to know these stories. And this is their heritage they've grown up with. You know, this is stuff that they're interested in. So on, on the one hand, it's just a kind of a no-brainer, common sense thing to do. But the other part of it is Qin Shi Huangdi, for example, for a long time had a reputation as a tyrant. Um, he liked to burn books and to bury scholars alive if they said things about him he didn't like. Now, he's not the only Chinese emperor to do that, and he's not the only world leader in history to do things like that. <laughs> but as a result of that, and, and the Han dynasty that followed him, at least according to the historians who wrote about it, was much more cultured than he was, right? And so he was really a tyrant and a dictator and all these things. But his career has been really rehabilitated in the last 30 years. Part of it, I think, because of more nuanced readings of his record that are deserved. Um, that he wasn't necessarily more of a tyrant than anybody else. But also, and this particularly comes true for the Chinese Communist Party, that his role as a state builder is really important. And that his unification of the country is really important. There's a film in the 2000s called Hero, starring Jet Li which is ostensibly a kind of a crouching target, hidden dragon style, you know, action movie set in the imperial past. But the actual plot of that movie is that this guy, Qin Shi Huangdi, hires an assassin to eliminate these other people who are against his rule. And the film is full of pathos and how sad this is and everything else. But that ultimately this he's doing the right thing because unifying the country is the right thing to do. And you know what? Sometimes individual taste, individual desires need to give way to the state because that's better for everybody. That's the message the Chinese Communist Party is currently selling Chinese people. Mm, yeah. And it and it is a justification and I and I must be clear that there are so many different ways this conversation happens and it can be very nuanced and everything else. But that's the that's the pitch they're selling. And so in that framework, Qin Shi Huangdi makes perfect sense. Now I'm not saying the civilization games are supporting that because that's not why they've chosen these guys. But I think there's a really interesting shared um, experience going on there between the two. And I think the link between the two is that, you know, East Asian audiences genuinely are fond of these kind of imperial motifs. They like them. They're present in their own storytelling mediums. And so I think it's a genuine step forward in representation. But it does click into a really interesting <laughs> modern state-led narrative of how this stuff works, which at its most extreme is effectively the justification for what we're now seeing is effectively a genocide in Xinjiang and very, very worrying um, policies being undertaken in Hong Kong. And the underpinning argument is uh, sometimes individuals must make sacrifices for the common good. And this is often framed in a long-standing Chinese experience. Oh, the West wouldn't understand this and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So I find that to be a really intriguing, although certainly unintended kind of, uh, you know, um, alignment between what Civ is doing with its leaders and kind of how these leaders are functioning in these discourses more broadly. Yeah, and 
uh, I think it's also interesting. And, you know, I just, you could have seen here, I was doing a search for Mao in here. And uh, one of the things I was noticing while you were talking is that uh, Mao is not actually mentioned uh, in the Civilpedia entry mm -hmm. for China. Uh, you would assume that things ended uh, in the early 20th century before we even right. get uh, to Mao. So <laughs> not only is he kind of scrubbed out of, you know, Chinese history, at least as presented in uh, the game, uh, or, you know, as a leader, he's also scrubbed out of Chinese history as presented in the Civilpedia. Now, he is mentioned here in passing uh, for the section on communism. Uh, they bring mm -hmm. up uh, Mao. Uh, Mao suggested, you know, agricultural peasants, uh, and then also some mention here of uh, Maoist Cambodia. Uh, and so uh, there is at least some mention of Mao here, but very curious to think about you know, what these uh, predominantly Western developers at Firaxis are attempting to do in not only diversifying the leadership in the game, but then also the ways in which they are changing how China is presented, presumably for uh, a, you know, East Asia Chinese audience uh, for this game. I mean, that's, that's such an excellent point. And I think, you know, it's so fascinating to think about it. You know, in those early Civ games, you could have oh, you're China, you're, that means you're Mao. And it was kind of, you know, this sounds like such, such an old man thing to say, but that it was a different time. And that kind of cartoonish approach to it was fine. And I think part of it was kind of where video games were. Yes. <laughs> you know, they'd like, the, the, the expectations were not as sophisticated, even among video game fans. But also that, like, you could do that then, whereas if, if Mao was there now in the same almost kind of jaunty way, somebody could easily point out, you know, he's his policies were responsible for the deaths of at least 25 million people. Yes. And we don't even want to go there. And I understand that and I understand where they're going from. I think a knock-on effect of this, from my specific point of view, and I want to stress I'm kind of not being fair here, is that you actually, they fall back into the classic Civ trap, where now, as you pointed out, China is effectively... A civilization whose relevance ends in 1850 yes, you know yes. or even 1750 now in fairness i really don't think that's what fraxis is trying to say and i think that that's a little bit of a i i think they deserve a bit more leeway than that but at the same time but i think that issue is there when you look at it this way mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that can be a challenge now now what you're doing is you're placing china chronologically effectively in the past which of course is exactly what the western powers did from the opium wars onward the justification for the treatment of china and japan and, and all of africa for example becomes this chronological placement of them behind europe on this kind of progress scale which again goes back to civ's like original sin maybe you could call it or <laughs> or i think a, 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 a fair way to describe it is this is the problem that they're always trying to resolve without losing the gameplay that that makes civ civ yeah yeah and i i would say to be fair to Firaxis, to be fair to Sid Meier, this is a problem that historians deal with all the time. Yes, is, yes, know, 100%. How do we, how do we portray uh, the chronology of history in a way that is not, um, you know, with this colonial mindset, that is not mm -hmm. with this racist uh, Western mindset? And uh, so it's, it's not just, you know, and it's fair to criticize the Civilization series for this, but it's not just the Civilization series that does this, right? Many historians still grapple mm -hmm. with this issue to this day. You know, just go and look at current textbooks, right? There's all sorts mm -hmm. of sections that are dedicated to timelines uh, and thinking in terms of, uh, of timelines and, you know, wondering about chronology. So it's, yeah, it's not just a, 
not just a problem uh, for these games. And I'm really glad you said that, actually, because I'm really glad you did, because when I teach world history, we spend it, in, and doing it right now, we spend an entire semester saying that all the time. And I'll say <laughs> to students, like, guys, I, I can't escape this problem. I'm not standing up here and telling you, this is a problem, we're not going to fall into it. No, no, this is a problem that you and I are living right now, right this second. And I'll tell them, when it, whether it's textbooks or a syllabus for a class, I could, and you can teach classes thematically, as you know, Bob, but at the same time, jumping from like 1150 to 1850 and back to 1350 and so on and so on. These are very challenging things to do. And especially you look at the reason history respond exists. When people choose to engage with history outside of a classroom on their own time, most of the time they need some kind of structure for it to make any kind of sense. And civilization is a piece of entertainment. It's not, I think it can be educational actually. And I think that Faraxis has done some really important work in that area. So I'll be clear about that. But it is meant to be something to be enjoyed and people are handing over their money to have fun with it. And so, yeah, they have a different set of um, constraints to the rest of us, but they are, we're, we're all struggling with that. Yeah. So, yeah, when I criticize Siv, I mean, this is, listen, we're, this is what we do for a living. We criticize everything, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and, and, I, and I, I see, and I see progress over the years. Your earlier question of my personal experience with Siv. I, I think they deserve credit. I think over the years, they've gotten better and better and better. And they, especially in the last couple of iterations, five and six, where I feel like various communities, video game fans and other communities have reached out and said, we feel negatively about this or we have issues with this. I feel Firaxis listens to those people. You mm-hmm. know, that, that's the impression I have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to be commended because it's, it's enormously difficult and you can't keep everybody happy. It can't be done. Uh, well, on the, uh, the note of uh, constant criticism, uh, I'm going to leave you with this final question, John, <laughs> uh, which is, as an experienced Civ player and as a scholar, <laughs> do you have any particular recommendations for the developers of Civilization going forward uh, with regard to China or with regard to the game more generally? Well, I think following on from what we were just talking about, um, there's a challenge, and this might just be the way that I play the game, of I play the game almost, I click into that great civilization's mindset, you know, where there was a time not that long ago where that's how world history was taught. Mm-hmm. Today we'll do the Egyptians. Next week we're going to do the Romans. You know, we'll move on up to the to the Chinese empires of various types. If we're feeling really saucy, we'll bring in the Indians at some point, you know. Um, and, you know, that, 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 that's, a, that's a mode for another day. Um, but I kind of click into that mode myself and I never feel, although you can get modern units as China and as other civilizations as well, never really feels that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that you get the classic an- anachronism of, you know, I got to fighter jets while my opponent's still on chariots and all that kind of stuff. And I actually find that to be kind of a classic Civ moment. <laughs> I kind of like that kind of stuff. Um, I think, you know, when you look at something like Confucianism and cultural slash religious systems, I think those systems have been a big plus. And I think that, if you had to choose between trying to shift the energies or the rhythm of a Civ game to be to feel less like the building of civilizations to advance to the early modern period, if you had to choose between that or rather having more in-depth and more intriguing and more involved explorations of what those early modern periods are, I, I think if you have to choose one of those, I think they're doing a good job. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the religious and cultural systems are good. And I think that... Um, you build on your strengths, right? So maybe Civ Seven, when it finally shows up, will continue to build on that. But I would, I would love what feels to me like the modern period never quite works all that well. Yes, 
it feels like an end game, which again, in fairness, is kind of what it is. And I'm one of those guys who like to call to power because they're underwater cities. I'm one of those people. So like maybe that's just my own personal bias. But that would allow you to really kind of get into things. <laughs> yeah. So that would allow you to get into some really interesting ideas. Now, I'm saying that I'll, I'll cheat and be an historian and end it with by countering my own point. That creates problems for them, too. Right. I mean, will the Red Guards, people who at one point were murdering their teachers, will the Red Guards be a unit? You know, like if they were going to follow my quote unquote advice and modernize things more, then there'd be a culture revolution type kind of perk where your country would have pros and cons associated with going into the culture revolution. And one of the cons would be roving bands of red guards that sometimes do what you say and sometimes don't. Um, but that's really challenging when there are people alive whose grandparents suffered at the hands of those people. Um, so that that's the, that's the challenge that you get. But, but I guess that's what I, I would love to see. I would love to see some kind of a reckoning with, for example, what does a republic mean beyond a different government type to a monarchy? You know, and maybe that involves tinkering with the recipe in a way that is dangerous mm -hmm. um but i'd love to see i would love to see something like that like in the in the in in, in crusader kings 2 for example in europe universalis 4 where things like republics and the italian merchants and stuff those the, the systems those games have allow them to get it further into that area than civ has been able to do i think um and i think civ tried this with city states before um but i'd love to see that kind of diversification into kind of more modern more kind of One is despoiled by ideological understanding of the Republic as a genuinely transformational thing would be, would be great. Mm, yeah. And one thing, uh, you know, just to piggyback off what you were saying, uh, not just with your comments on Civ generally, but then also with regards to China, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is what they've done uh, with the persona system. Uh, and then also uh, the changes with leadership in the DLC. Uh, so, for instance, Kublai Khan, uh, he is a uh, leader that can be for China or from Mongolia. And, mm. you know, I think that that gets to one of the problems that I've had with the series, uh, which is, you know, we have this kind of still in Civ Six, we still have this static notion of civilization, right? You know, this is the Chinese civilization and they are going to be in this silo here. And they're not going to have any outside influence uh, from anybody else. Mm -hmm. uh, but here with these new leaders, uh, Kublai Khan, and then, um, you know, I think also of, uh, uh, I think it's I think it's France uh, that has got uh, a dual leadership. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine and uh, Catherine de' Medici. Two different versions there. It speaks to this idea that civilizations or cultures are not these static objects, right? Where it's just mm -hmm. uh, China emerging as a civilization completely without any outside influence. It speaks to the idea that, no, there's in fact a lot of influence coming from other parts of the world that go into creating what we recognize as this, you know, cultural form, this cultural unit. And so uh, I hope that they continue doing that in the future, right? I, th mm -hmm. I hope to see that as part of the base game in, you know, maybe... Civilization Seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we're dealing, we're dealing right with the legacy of how we look at these things. I mean, listen, I'm a proud Irish nationalist, and I, I'm very <laughs> proud of being Irish. In class, we did the Ottoman Empire in class today, for example. And you know, you're you're thinking of, you know, this as you know, Bob. Of course, um, 
all this way of looking at history is also tied to kind of an emergence of a very specific kind of ethnocentric understanding of what a country is mm-hmm. um, that precludes all of that. And so, for example, and in an increasingly, funnily enough, in an increasingly connected world where I think a responsible um, publisher, the size developer, the size of Fraxis does want to think about its various audiences around the world. Um, this is to an extent kind of what the Chinese audience wants, I would think, to a certain extent. Um, and what kind of what I want doesn't necessarily, not only does it not necessarily sell video games, it might not be a good fit for what those kind of people want. And so it becomes really fascinating as to how Firaxis kind of satisfies those kinds of questions. Like I come from a very small country where a lot of the way, Ireland, where a lot of the way we think about our history is defined by um, uh, resistance to a larger neighbor. But then those larger countries, you know, they're, they're resistant to the idea of thinking about their culture as actually being a really interesting concoction of lots of these external things, yes. right? I mean, so there's going to be a reluctance among certain Chinese people to acknowledge that. There's reluctance in Japan to recognize the very important roles the Koreans played in the formation of Japanese states. I mean, you know, Britain has this fascinating thing of the mongrel nation idea, right, where they kind of theoretically um, take on this idea that they have no ethnic base, but that's not actually how it plays out. And like the U.S., funnily enough, even though it's such a new country, <laughs> you know, this idea of what does it mean to essentially be American? You know, it, it, these are these are really difficult traps to get out of. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think you're right. I think I think I think the civilization games. This is why History Respond exists. The civilization games can really be an avenue for those things to happen. Yeah, absolutely. OK, uh, well, I think that does it for today's episode. John, thank you so much for joining me on Civs 101. Thanks for having me, Bob. An absolute pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>